Sell. No, sell. Bye-bye. Sell. Bye-bye-bye. Yeah, those are the instinct lyrics. Yeah. Sell. Look, I, I can't talk right now, all right? I'm already super late. I have to pick up Daniel's cousin and show him around town. I don't know. It's Daniel's cousin, so probably uh, feet and pee-pee. <laughs> Stop it. You're bad. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Sell. <clears throat> Hello, cousin of Daniel. I have prepared this speech to welcome you to our country and to apologize for... You're late. For being late. <clears throat> a long time ago in a sleepy Pueblo town... I have to go to the airport now. Well, I hope you had a good time in L.A. What have you been up to? I've been in here waiting for you for three days, living off of nothing but the smell of bacon-wrapped street dogs and my own pee-pee. I knew it. At least your bags are packed. They were never unpacked. Hey, you know what? To make it up to you, I'm going to show you all the big alley landmarks on the way to the airport. How's that sound, pal? I'm not my cousin, and I'm not your pal. Ooh, there's that trademark Zafran charm. <laughs> Come down with something? Your voice gives me flu. Oh, look, here comes the first landmark. Up on the hill, there's a holly... What? What am I supposed to be looking at? There used to be a lot of letters there. It, it spelled out Hollywood. They called it the Hollywood sign. Sounds frivolous. Where I come from, we use our letters for books. Where do you come from? Where all Daniel's bloodline hails from. Mordor. Oh, good luck getting a visa. Oh, here's our next one. Romans Chinese the... What? Grown man's Cambodian theater. No, 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 this isn't right. There used to be glitz and glamour and footprints and wet cement. What you're describing is a construction site. Keep driving. No, this is all wrong, all wrong. The landmarks, the big ones, they're all gone. I... Oh, no. I have to check. I have to make sure it's safe. Where are we going? Shut up. Is it by the airport? Shut up. Yeah. Okay, here it is. Just around the corner. Randy's... Croissants? Randy's croissants? No, it's donuts! Randy's donuts! That didn't used to be a croissant up there, it was a big donut! Did you say big donut? Big donut, big donut, big donut! I keep a picture of that donut in my wallet to keep me grounded. I remember now, look! The big donut! Big donut, big donut, big donut! It's fading away! If that's fading away, then all our city landmarks, which I now see were all just cheap marketing employees, are lost forever! Unless you know someone who plays the guitar. It's not working! It's still a croissant! Try playing Johnny Be Good! That opening riff's too high. I can only play doo-wop or slower. What's slower than doo-wop? Wait! But if he never... Okay, now hear me out. I know how this is gonna sound. You gotta kiss the croissant. What? If you never kiss the croissant at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, then I'll never have been born. How do you figure? Kiss the croissant, Greg! I'm not putting my lips on that thing. I know how the French like that kiss. I'm fading away. Do it! For the attention. Alright! It worked! It's a donut again! Hey, wanna grab a donut? I prefer croissants. Daniel! Greg, stop! No, Daniel. It's me. You know that cousin you've been looking for? Daniel Barry? Wait. You two have the same first name and different last names? I thought you were related. We're, we're Vikings. Vikings. Well, I guess you do sound alike. No, no we, we don't. don't. Daniel, what are you doing back from your vacation to the future? It's your kids, Greg. You have to come back with me. Back? Back where? Back to a later date. Well, what's wrong with my kids? Are they ugly or something? Well, they're your kids. That's a given. All right. I mean, they do plastic surgery now, you know. All right, now. Come on. Masks are centuries old and they're very easy to get. That's enough. Well, they are ugly. What's wrong with my kids? Greg, 
They're part croissant. Take me to them. I'll kill them myself with my own bear claws. Let's go. What road are we taking? Road? Where we're going, we don't need road. My car was impounded. We're taking the orange line. Shouldn't we gather a bunch of trash to put in the flux capacitor? Greg, it's the orange line. There's plenty. Can you break a five? Low, riders, take a little higher. <laughs> Your love takes me a little lower. <laughs> Hi, everybody! Welcome to episode forty. Hell yeah, this, this is, is forty of. Uh, we didn't plan that. Of Ali Meekly, the podcast. We're back in studio. Yeah, no more audience because we can't handle it because we're not good at it. We gave them one chance and they attacked us after the show was over. They ripped at my hem. <laughs> they threw flowers at us. What's this? How dare they? They kissed my feet <laughs> and then they washed it with their own hair. Well, they wanted to wash my ring with saliva. I'm like, no, thank you. Hi, everybody. Oh, hi. Hey. Um, to you, I guess. I don't know. I thought we, you know, we agreed on stage to never see each other again. Except for the hour and a half before we record, where we have to get in the mood. And you know that entails. <laughs> Hit it, Glenn Miller. <laughs> low <laughs> He liked the low cars. He liked to get real high. So high that he... So yeah, this is 40, 40 episodes in. Mm-hmm, 40 episodes. That's ridiculous. We, 40 months we've been doing this. I think in episode four, we're like, yeah, like we're going to make it to 40 and we're here. We don't in like episode it. four, we were saying, yeah, like we'd make it to five. <laughs> <laughs> we proved them wrong. Them being us. Yeah. Them being us. Yeah. We were the only people listening back I then. I love proving us wrong. So in this episode, what, it's April 1st. <gasps> no episode for anybody Whoa, this no, no, month. No, hang, hang on, everybody. Greg, you want some peanut brittle? Yeah, I'd love some. Here, eat this. Ah! <laughs> Oh, what is this? Cement. <laughs> and you're allergic. My molars are out. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm bleeding everywhere. You're an April fool. <laughs> Specifically in April of an April Specific. kind. What happens in April stays in April. And um. that isn't an abortion thing. <laughs> so this month, we're going to be talking about landmarks that used to be here, but are no longer there. Where'd they go? April Fool's. <laughs> April Fool's. Hollywood sign's gone. April Fool's. They demolished it. <laughs> April Fool's. The Hollywood Bowl's full of salad now. <laughs> Bring a fork, April <laughs> Fools. April Fools, it's raining ranch dressing. April Fools, global warming's real. It's associated with ranch dressing for some reason. <laughs> That's what all those ranchos, when it rains on a ranch, it's ranch. My, um, the dad jokes are palpable in this one. Oh boy. April Fools, my dad disappeared. <laughs> no um, one's even looking for him, April Fools. So yeah, we're going to be talking about six different things that used to be big parts of this city, mm-hmm. iconic parts of the city, mm-hmm. and now uh, for probably the same reason for all of them are now gone. Yeah. You'll find out what that reason is next month for May Fools Day. <laughs> Every month's got one. You got to figure out when it is. Uno de Mayo. Really good at Spanish. Are you like 14% proficient in Spanish like I am on Duolingo? Yeah. Cool. I've never been rated. I like to think that I have never been tested. <laughs> I like. You yeah. certainly are mother approved. Kid rejected, mother approved. <laughs> never had to knock on wood. Okay. There we go. There okay. We go. <laughs> no, uh, uh, you, you had a look on your face like you're about to throw up, but it was just a stupid thing that you wanted yeah, to say. That's the look I get on my face when I'm about to quote a song from the 90s. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, 
It's funny that I was, as a research resource for all of my entries on this one, I just had to go back to old episodes and listen to you talk. And they were every time I had to do something, it was you doing the research and you talking. <laughs> I've become a primary source. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so thanks for the heavy lifting. Yeah, well, now, if the information's wrong, we're just reinforcing it. it. Yeah, it, it, this has become very carnivorous now. <laughs> the Ouroboro podcast. That, can we, it's too late to change the name? Oh, no. Let's change the name. But we have so much Ouroboro to Lives. connect it to Ellie Meek. <laughs> Watch me eat Greg from the bottom <laughs> and Greg eats me from the top. Live. Live. Paid for by Comedy Central. No shoes. All no. Right. no. You just bought new shoes and I want to eat them. <laughs> For this story, for my first story, we have to go back to a local character who was mentioned in two, possibly three different episodes. A very important man to the city with an alliterative name. I don't know, Gary Gonzalez, is it? <laughs> is it Anthony Anderson? Yeah, it's Anthony Anderson. It's actually Gary Glitter. <laughs> William Wolfskill, the man who blazed trail from St. Louis to Santa Fe to Los Angeles and had to eat his mules and horses to survive along the way. <laughs> so let's just give like a brief reintroduction to Wolfskill and his impact to our area. He came to Los Angeles trapping fur, but it was illegal to trap fur in the Mexican era California without being a Mexican citizen. And that's when William took on a Chris Gaines type transformation and Jose Guillermo Wolfskill was born, which was his declaration of Mexicanness. He was uh, coming up short on money and as a form of work, he planned to hunt sea otters in San Pedro Bay. To do this, he built the first schooner in LA named the Refugio, mm. but then they had to sell it a year later due to a sincere lack of sea otters in San Pedro Bay. <laughs> in 1938, the Mexican government gave Wolfskill a plot of land at Alameda and 3rd that he used to grow wine grapes. You can listen to Candy's Dander but Liquor is Quicker to find out more about that. Candy Dander? Candy Dander Liquor. <laughs> I'm not good with them $5 words. <laughs> like liquor. I can't handle my liquor when I say it. You're telling me to say it? I got confused. Say it. He grew 55,000 wine vines over 145 acres. To be exact, the Mexican government granted Jose Guillermo William Wolfskill 100 acres of land between 3rd and 9th that was boxed in by San Pedro and Alameda. And his adobe was at 239 Alameda Street between 3rd and 4th, which is verbatim what you said in a previous episode. (laughs) (laughs) But where's the jokes? Where's the hilarious jokes? Where's the punch? Where are the cutting edge jokes? Where's that sharp wit I'm known for? (laughs) Yes. As you put, and I paraphrase, he's one of the three most important winos in California wine uh, history. Oh, God. I'm so good. That's funny. No, no, really. That's funny. Could you sign my script page, please? <laughs> I'll sign everybody's iPod. Ooh, downloads this. Right on the screen. Magnum Sharpie. I'm going to need about $5 from everybody, though. I'll send you my PayPal at web address or whatever. Daniel wants money at paypal.com. And like any wino, he quickly grew dissatisfied with his life and decided to change it dramatically. But to do this, he just went from grapes to oranges. We all know that phrase from grapes to oranges. From wine to sangria. <laughs> As you may remember from our Orange Groves episode, Pulp Nonfiction, in 1841, nine years before California becomes part of the United States, Wolfskill got sweet Spanish orange seedlings from the San Gabriel Mission and planted them on his land at 5th and Alameda, two acres worth. This orange idea took off and eventually planted 2,500 orange trees on 70 acres by the adobe along the river. It was the largest orange grove in the United States at the time. He also is credited with introducing the Valencia orange, but that wasn't this grove that's in Valencia. Also, Wolfskill started what is considered to be the first American school in California after giving personal education lessons out of his home to first his children and then local kids. So that's Wolf Skill. Just a reminder. Yeah, I know. God darn it. Gosh dang. <laughs> Ding dang. Diddly doodly. <laughs> Who were we doing yesterday? Was Flan- oh, uh, um, Boba Fett. Boba Fett. <laughs> Boba Fett and Ned Flanders. For anyone who doesn't know, look up a picture. Look up a picture of the guy who plays Boba Fett without his helmet on. Jeremy Bullock. And the phrase, he's no good diddly. <laughs> he's no good diddly used to be dead. <laughs> Ding, ding, diddly dead will make sense to you. So we have to go back to another episode now. Episode four. <laughs> now we have to go back to episode, You're Killing Me, Larry, to talk about the Southern Pacific Railroad and E.H. Harriman. Gosh darn, we're funny. We're so 
on it. <laughs> so on it. E.H. Harriman, who through many wheelings and dealings, put himself in place to become president of Southern Pacific. Harriman had his eye in Los Angeles to build his empire, which he had to go toe-to-toe against Henry Huntington and his company Pacific Electric, both of whom were trying to unify the city by the way of rails, and both of them wanted to be the man that did that. Mm-hmm. The two men competed heavily in going around the city and collecting the most rails, with Huntington eventually seceding to Harriman. A Southern Pacific Railroad is historically the most important transportation link for Los Angeles. There are a lot of factors that helped turn Los Angeles into a real city that people were drawn to, and every few episodes we introduce a new one, like Hollywood is why everyone came here, or mm. the images of oranges, or oil, or fresh air, or the Olympics, but Southern Pacific is or part the of- the promise of lizard people. The, where are they? How do I become where, one of them? Prove that they're not them? here. <laughs> Obviously, the earth is flat and hollow, so, so they're down the, there. Yeah, and it, because, I saw Kong. Because the earth is flat, all ground is super hot all the time, and that's where lizards want to live, is underground, duh. Yeah. We're one big heat rock for the king lizard. Heat rock. <laughs> My favorite B-52 songs is heat rock. heat rock Lobster. I hate myself, and I want to live longer. Um, <laughs> so Southern Pacific is part, sorry, of all of oh. those things. My God. God, he spit all over me. You insulted me, and I got mad. I'm turning into a lizard. So with every idea- Water world? Gosh, dang. <laughs> God darn diddly- <laughs> Oh no ding ding diddly <laughs> vaporizations. Uh, it's disintegrations. Um, I'm talking about Django Fett now. He would vaporize. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a different. That's still Boba Fett. <laughs> but like I was saying, like everything that you associate with people coming to LA and drawing people in Southern Pacific is part of every one of them because they were mm-hmm. like the big transportation thing at the time. You would go on to stimulate agriculture and the marketing and distribution of oranges. They were responsible for towns being built. They encouraged oil drilling and industrial development and helped turn the area into a tourist stop. The city grew and flourished because of Southern Pacific. We should also introduce another figure in Los Angeles history, Phineas Banning. Around the late 1860s, Banning built a railroad between Los Angeles and San Pedro with the money he got from a state subsidy. This 21-mile railroad was called Banning's Los Angeles and San Pedro Railroad. The rail line ran from Tidewater in the South Bay area to Alameda Street near the plaza in LA around Wolfskill's Adobe. Banning was truly working towards harbor improvements and worked through the progression of ox carts with stagecoaches and wagons to rail lines. He like saw the evolution of that. This was apparently the first rail line in Southern California and was swallowed up by Southern Pacific along with everything else. But Banning made really good money from this because without this line that he created, Southern Pacific would have to go to San Bernardino and then have another mm-hmm. freight come into the city. No, San Bernardino. Emphasis I'm, on no. Emphasis on no. San Bernardino. Is what that was. Emphasis and, on and, bird, emphasis on no. I can't wait to go home and tell Melissa what I said. <laughs> and then I said. I can't wait to go and wake her up. <laughs> wake up. I had a new burn on the county of San Bernardino. <laughs> Why are you mad? I don't understand. God, you're always signing with San Bernardino. San <laughs> <Side> Bernardino. San <laughs> <Side> Bernardino. <laughs> <Side> Bernardino. <laughs> More like San Bernardino, yes. <laughs> so much fun you can have. <laughs> oh my God. Banning started buying up a lot of land in the harbor area in anticipation for those areas' productivity along the harbor, seeing that as that area would be the city's big port, and it would. Banning is still referred to as the father of the Los Angeles Harbor, and Wilmington was named after Banning's hometown in Delaware to honor his contribution to hmm. the area. Years later, when he was very ill, he was in San Francisco, and he got hit by a trolley, and a couple days later died. That's Phineas Banning. My own son. What hath I wrought? At two trolley. My son, my son, what have you done? <laughs> okay, so what's this that have to do with William Wolfskill? Yeah, please tell me. So cause... let's go back to 1885. A few years before Harriman took over Southern Pacific, the same year Southern Pacific bought and merged with the Central Pacific Railroad Company. It was also 40-something years before Wolfskill first planted the seeds on his land that were turned into, by this point, the largest orange grove in Southern California. Let's go back to the history of some of the depots in the area before I get to the one I'm going to talk the about. The what? Some of the, oh, depots, the depots. The depots. I thought you, that Did was I some... not address what I was going to 
talk about beforehand? No, I should. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the Arcade Depot. Okay. Yeah, I thought the depots was some slang you have for like burnouts or something. Oh, yeah, the depots. The depots. Yeah. Don't walk down Hollywood Boulevard at night. It's riddled with depots. Depots. I'm going to be talking about Home Depot today. <laughs> home. Friend, office. Home. <laughs> <laughs> Want to buy a shower and a lot of glue in the same place? Go to Lowell's. Um, <laughs> this episode brought to you by Osh. <laughs> by the people who wait outside of Lowell's. There was the Los Angeles Depot on the southwest corner of Alameda and Commercial Street between the Business District and Chinatown. It was a humble little station that was referred to once as being a freight shed and was used mostly for freight train duties and at one time i'm sure due to banning at the harbor all trains and ship arrivals were synchronized this was around that time there were some passenger steamer trains that went through the rail but they were less frequent and thus grossly inadequate for passengers when southern pacific began running trains in los angeles in 1874 this is a depot where trains would pass through this is the initial one it's los angeles depot there was a commercial street depot which later became the los angeles farming and mining company and used the depot itself to load freights southern pacific was also using this to load freights and overland passenger cars until 1877. There was the Los Angeles and Independence Depot running 1875 between Santa Monica's waterfront and Los Angeles area proper. Was because that of, the really long one? That wasn't the one that the went long, out. Yeah, that was the long this pier was, or something. Yeah, yeah. This I might have been the long pier. Yeah, it was because it went out to the waterfront. This was one of those land boosting things. Like these two guys, I mean, what are their names? Robert Stabler Baker. and Waldorf. Yes, that, yeah, it's those two guys who yell at everybody because they're in Santa Monica. They think they're better. They was hip in the, high in the hills of Malibu and they laugh at everybody. <laughs> Nature's balcony. <laughs> <laughs> the Pacific Palisades and the Muppets are all the Redondo Lost, Beach. Island, yeah. <laughs> Lost <laughs> Island of Moo that's sunk <laughs> under the Santa Monica Bay. Robert Baker owned Rancho San Vicente and Santa Monica and he sold two-thirds interest in his lands to a Nevada senator named John Jones. The two men subdivided up parts of this ranch and created Santa Monica, which is why they had a again, to go back to everything that happened in You're Killing Me Larry, people would buy these lands, they'd yeah. build a railroad and then that they would boost land that way. The LA and Independence Depot or it was also called the Santa Monica Depot was located between 4th and 5th streets on the east side of San Pedro. Apparently, this depot was very stylish with an overall Italian. <laughs> Sorry. Italiente details with French school empire influence and two ornate prominent towers capped by steeply pitched mansard roofs. There was a grand staircase, like two grand for this little station, and they had large bronze colored sphinxes which led up to the side of the building. What? The exterior looks like a church esque, but it also looks like a church that has a loading dock and a saloon. Like it's a really <laughs> weird looking place. Eventually, Santa Monica Depot was sold during the Huntington Harriman frenzied scramble for the rails, and it was used just for passenger trains for a bit, but then it burned down. Fire pier fries all. Then there was a river station, also known as the San Fernando Street Depot, which was in 1876. The first depot built, this is where it gets tricky. It was either the first Southern Pacific station built in LA that was officially Southern Pacific, or it was the first Southern Pacific depot built for strictly passengers. One of those two. It was built on what is now North Spring Street, formerly San Fernando Road, which is still a street. The river station was along North Street near Sotalo Street, which is between Lincoln Heights and Chinatown, kind of near Cathedral High School, where that field park is, you know, that lower field park, they call it the Cornfields, which is pretty scary what okay where is this you're like past chinatown on the way to lincoln heights if you're coming either like on main street or on spring street and you look like a lower grassy field where they have that dark carnival whatever it's called that's too expensive for me to go to dark carnival in the cornfield it's like bizarro or something i don't know what it's called that you're just making it more confusing <laughs> okay it's on broadway you're coming towards past lesion heights past where travis ravine was and on your right hand side there's like a lower tiered area and it's just grass Gosh, dong, diggly, darn, ding, ding, dong, 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 ding, diddly. She's no good to me, diddly, dead. It doesn't matter. Whether you know it or not, kind of doesn't matter to Let's me. Let's go over directions for a few more minutes. If I keep going down Figueroa, where will I end up? Where is it in relation to the pantry? 
You keep going on Figueroa. The river station was built with anticipation of the use for passenger trains between LA and San Francisco. The Southern Pacific River Station, as it was officially called, was the real deal. It was a large depot comprised of, instead of a large interior hallway, like a big room, it was a series of rooms that you pass through, like a baggage room, welfare express office, there were stairs, ticket office, a water closet for all that gay water that is not ready to let its family know how it feels about Brad. Uh, you know what a water closet was? It was really weird to me. Take a guess. It's a bathroom. How did you know that? I've never heard water closet before. That was a utility room. Like, no, all, all the pipes are here. That's what they call it. Like everywhere outside of the United States, it's really? called a water closet. I had no idea. That's stupid. The Brits. Oh, you you want to take the jumbly wumbly? That's what we call freeway. <laughs> you want to drain the old wiggly wall <laughs> in the water closet? As you ding ding diddly wish. <laughs> I saw the rubbish bin in the water closet. What are you talking about? You're not making words. <laughs> I want to call it poo poo dungeon. Anyways, yeah, doo doo dungeon. <laughs> this was like the first station in LA that was. It looked like. Like almost a modern station. It wasn't like a shack with a bunch of railroads <laughs> near it. Like it had it was, like uh, amenities. It wasn't just a box that a train happened to pass by. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it didn't have shovels and also train tracks. It was so fancy that there was even a water closet outside the building so workers and less desirable people An could go use that closet. <laughs> Eventually they moved to the new river station across on the other side of North Spring Street and then the old building was torn down. After passenger service moved to the arcade, river station was starting to be used mostly for freights and stuff. So, what's the deal with this arcade depot, Gray. What's you the deal What's with the, the arcade, arcade depot? depot? I'm not allowed to speak in this day and age because I'm <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> Wolfskill died in 1866, and then his two sons, Joseph and Lewis, died or Wolf's killed? He wolf's died. <laughs> wolf's killed by natural causes. <laughs> he died in 1866, and after this, his sons, Joseph and Lewis, took over their father's affairs. They started cheating on their mother. They started <laughs> sleeping with his dad's old mistresses. <laughs> I gotta do it. You signed the contract. <laughs> they also took over his business affairs. Joseph took over most of the father, his father's dealings, including the groves and all his properties. Lewis was responsible for the properties through the San Gabriel Valley, in particular, Rancho Santa Anita, or as we know it, Santa Anita. <laughs> or as we know it, a horse racing track. <laughs> William Wolfskill bought it after the intense flood and then the many droughts <laughs> of the 1860s. He got it for mud dirt cheap is what I wrote. In 1877, Joseph began using Southern Pacific to ship out oranges, the first batch going to St. Louis, thus yeah. kicking off citrus mania across this fine land. <laughs> With Wolfskill orange groves plentiful at the time, he saw an opportunity. So in 1885, Joseph donated the grove, which keep in mind was one of the largest in the country and most successful in the country at the time. He donated this to Southern Pacific, thus putting a major American railroad right at his front door. Mm -hmm. Clever guy. Mm -hmm. What I've always wanted. And who would be <laughs> answering that front door if Southern Pacific was knocking? Oranges, brother. Oranges. And because property near a major railroad would yield more profits, whatever wasn't gifted to Southern Pacific was then subdivided into 25 square foot lots and then sold off. That's what he did with that land up there on Alameda. So, okay, yes, Southern Pacific decided they wanted to build yet another passenger station at this more central point in Los Angeles. Even though it's like two miles apart, they wanted it more <laughs> central. Two miles would take you like four years to travel back then. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, Unless you were an orange. <laughs> a frozen orange and then he wanted to un freeze on the way much like han solo and carbonite <laughs> construction of the arcade <laughs> he's no he's not like dead i'm trying to think of other boba fett lines but i think we've um, covered all three of them he's God, no good to me dead, dead as you wish or as you were as, no no he says as you as you wish as yeah. you wish he was in the princess bride yeah, <laughs> yeah he's he was the he's dread pirate boba Robert. fett <laughs> what's the other one he doesn't say anything in return of the jedi except oh <laughs> Except, ouchie! <laughs> at least say, excuse me. <laughs> you hit me. Boba Fett, where? Here. <laughs> right here, sir. Okay, uh, so construction of the well, arc. we weren't on topic? <laughs> what, do we keep going back to the same joke? What, are we so desperate to try to make someone laugh that we have to make the one thing that we thought was funny work? It is funny. We don't think it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. Hey, 
it's funny. It's funny. Everybody. I'm are, telling you, it's funny. <laughs> this is comedy. This is the comedy revolution. Construction of the Arcade Depot. And just to be clear, not arcade games, okay? Arcade is an yeah. older term meaning a place with arches. <laughs> Let me tell you, side note, before we get into it, why I picked the Arcade Depot. We were doing the tour of the Cecil and somebody couldn't figure out what train station was on Alameda. And the guy from SO Tour said the Arcade Depot. And when he said that, I heard pinball machines in my head and I had no <laughs> idea. So I started looking into it and then just gave me the opportunity yeah. to look into it. An arcade, an old-fashioned term, means a place with arches. Stanford mm-hmm. University has a series of arches, thus is an arcade. Mom and dad, I got accepted to Stanford Arcade University. <laughs> I need a lot of quarters. I need like, uh, like, I need like 8 billion yeah, quarters. <laughs> I need like $10,000 worth of tuition quarters. Did everyone bring your tuition tokens? <laughs> Why did I say that like a Canadian? <laughs> we were playing with Brits, now you haven't got back yet. Excuse me, I got to go to the water closet. <laughs> Sorry. 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 Sorry, I wet my pants. Construction of the Arcade Depot began in March of 1888 and concluded in September of that same Wait, year. Wait, what, what, what year? 1888, son. I said 1988. 1988, what were you? That's when I was constructed. The, the arcade depot went up really fast, but passenger train service didn't open up till the following year in February, which was due to a conflict in the right-of-way rules with the depot from Santa Monica. They couldn't figure out which trains would be allowed the right-of-way, so it didn't open this for This sounds like a, a math problem. <laughs> the design of the arcade depot is what is usually remembered most about it. Its designer was Arthur Brown, who was superintendent of the Bridges Buildings Department of the Central Pacific Railroad. It was a depot made mostly of wood, and in this town, the fact that it, spoiler alert, doesn't burn down and appear fine fire is a miracle. Later, after typing that hilarious sentence out, I read that <laughs> this was a concern and there were ample water hydrants placed in the depot and six firemen employed there. Like full-time a rotation guarding. of firemen. Make sure fire doesn't come here. Arky Depot was 500 feet long and 80 feet wide with a 90-foot high arched roof supported by iron roof trestles. The high ceiling gave off abundant natural light, but there was also these skylights above the trains with glazed arches. Mm. It's designed with a Victorian style, so again, it looks like an... With sprinkled turrets. Mm. <laughs> Mm. And um, where the support beams jelly filled. <laughs> I just have to know. Was it gingerbread made, made of gingerbread? I'm so tired. Daniel, let me go to sleep. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> it's made in Victorian style, so it looks like a church that prays to trains, which was a trend in the East Coast and European train stations. The main part of the building separated trains from the elements, so passengers could move on and off of them in comfort. Tracks inside this room in the depot, and there's also a station outside. There were three full-length passenger trains for this station and 12 rails from what I believe. The outside was light green olive and dark red, which were in sync with the color scheme of the Southern Pacific trains bye, at the bye, time. Bye-bye-bye. They were in sync. Outside was a lush garden meant to welcome travelers to the beautiful Southern California climate. Beside the main entrance, there was a fully grown palm tree. Mm. There was a lawn for families to come and picnic. They had agaves and sago palms, coniferous trees, and there was a cactus garden. The Allied Times praised the arcade station as second to none on the Pacific Slope. On Fifth Street, there was the arcade hotel and palm house for travelers. The arcade hotel had a drugstore, a barber, a billiard room, and a restaurant. The Palm House was a restaurant for those train patrons who didn't want to eat at the Arcade Depot's lunch counter or dining room. So that's the Arcade Depot. Snobs. That's it? Finding stories like well, where there was... Where'd it go? I'm gonna get to it, alright? I'm gonna get to it. Oh, I thought your story was done. No, no, I got a little bit more, but what I'm saying is like I found two stories of things that happened there. One time, a bunch of horses ran through it. <laughs> that, that's funny. Now that's a story I want to hear. And then they were turned into glue. <laughs> they came out the other side as glue. <laughs> they hijacked the train. <laughs> <laughs> like those cow commercials or whatever they're starting to sell chicken? I don't know. Yeah. I want Popeye's chicken. Let's get Popeye's chicken. No. Oh, God. No, Greg. You never let me have any fun. This is a KFC podcast. <laughs> We're a KFC family here. It's Chick-fil-A or nothing. You know where our politics <laughs> lean. Another time, like, a family got stranded here, and then one of the, the workers, horses took the them home. Ho- they, they rode the horses home. One of the Arcade Depot employees paid for them to go home. Well, great story. Okay, fantastic for them. I bet they're all dead now. I'm upset that you brought that story up. So, that's the Arcade Depot. What happened? From what I can tell, several things, but most importantly, from everything I read, the 
Arcade Depot was style over function. Like it looked beautiful. Everyone talked about it. Oh, it looked beautiful. Yeah, it is an impressive building. It was. It, an impressive it was. Building. But also, it just the city was growing, and it, it was not prepared to. We outgrew it. it. We outgrew it. It was not prepared for the next ten years that were about to come. Yeah, that's everything that we're going to talk about. Everything. Yeah. We, we just outgrew them. Yeah, we out. Yeah, exactly. Like the city's population expanded from fifty thousand to five hundred and fifty thousand in that time. Along with that, water was introduced to the city via the Owens Valley, and with that, the city flourished and grew seemingly in all directions. So the arcade depot was a big deal in 1888. It was now the 20th century and the need for the bigger train station was a necessity now. The arcade couldn't do it. By the 19-teens, enthusiasm over the arcade depot completely vanished. People thought of it as antiquated, unsightly, and an inadequate station. And in the end, it was a beautiful Queen Anne-style station, but it could not accommodate three trains. Like it, <laughs> I heard it could fit 12 horses. In <laughs> as long as they're wild. If anything spells... <laughs> new the wild horses. <laughs> I, don't have no, I, mean, I can't even remember what year they had horse-drawn cars that, and the horses kept dying, but it was probably associated yeah, with that. Maybe a few well, like went rogue and then <laughs> had a family in the mountains. And this was their big attempt to retake yeah, the city. they're going to get on a train and no one was going to stop them. <laughs> if anything spells a new parking lot in Los Angeles, it's style over function, mm. which I won't spell out because there's not enough time. But the Chamber of Commerce was embarrassed by the Arcade Depot saying it made a bad impression upon travelers. When they see the Arcade Depot, it makes a bad impression on tourists and people who come here. Compared to the fine depots of Boston and St. Louis and other cities. So around 1912, 1913, Southern Pacific started looking into replacing the arcade depot with something more grand. It was demolished in 1914 and replaced almost immediately with the central station, a much larger and more modern railroad passenger depot, which is now where Mocha is, I believe. That long brick wall that rides along Alameda. The arcade station, meanwhile, passed into history unhonored and unsung, as the Times wrote. And no one really cared as they were like dismantling the arcade station. It was just done. Central station later met its demise when old Chinatown also met its demise and Union Station was built in 1939. And then that was it. That's our central station now. Yeah, there was a certain point where they sort of literally almost entirely wiped the slate of downtown LA clean yeah. and then they're like this is new yeah town. Yeah, keep it new keep it all 20th century yeah. no no more of this 1890 style stuff. that'll never go out <laughs> yeah so that's the arcade depot well uh you know um doing great yeah uh so uh, uh, can we talk about boba fett more <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah you can snort on this podcast but seriously you're no good to me <laughs> Not while I have water in my mouth. Not while I'm going water closet. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of water closet. Oh no, I water closet my pants. <laughs> I made a water closet of my pants. So now I'm going to uh, do my first story. Dead Man's Island. <gasps> What's that? Dead men tell no tales, <laughs> but I'm only dead to my family. <laughs> So I've got a tale for you. Much like the people that this island was named after, it is no longer there. What I'm talking about is El Moro, or as it came to be known, Isla de los Muertos. This was an island just off the coast of San Pedro. It was 800 feet long, 200 feet wide, with a peak that reached up to 60 feet with this arch, an arcade, through the stone. That itself kind of became iconic. In all, it covered about a half acre that you would actually be able to walk to from San Pedro during low tide. Uh Jesus is only during high tide. (laughs) Before this place became known as the Island of the Dead, supposedly it had been used by the natives as a burial ground, with the first of these burials being that of Chief Blake. 
Blackhawk, who was the last male survivor of the tribe of San Nicolas Island, the Nicolenos. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's the... Um, Island of the Blue the Dolphin dolphins. people? Yeah. yeah. The Blue Dolphin people. Yeah. But yeah, the last male was supposedly that. buried there, and the rest were absorbed or killed by the Mass mission. Mass grave! Okay. <laughs> it was made out of dead bodies, <laughs> but he was buried inside <laughs> of <it>. <laughs> That's how important he was. The name was given to it, according to one story, in 1810, when some Mexican fishermen found the body of a dead gringo on it, oh. and this pinche gringo, he, he, was, he was most likely a smuggler who had fallen overboard from a ship, and for whatever reason, he was too weak to walk f- <laughs> from the island into San Pedro during yeah. low tide. If I know gringos, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not walking there. Where's, where's my uh, chauffeur? Where's the train? Where's the rickshaw? <laughs> so he just died there. <laughs> I would rather die, and die he did. From then on, it started being called the Island of the Corpse, but as more bodies started piling up there, it morphed into the Island of the Dead. Richard Dana of Dana Point wrote about oh. the island in his book Two Years Before the Mast, where he told the story of a brutal sea captain who mysteriously died after ingesting a dose of poison, and then his corpse was rushed onto the island and it was buried on top of its hill without any ceremony. Many years later, as the island started eroding, in 1901, some kids were fishing there and found his exposed skeleton that had a rope tied around its head and ribs. Confirm- Dana Point? Da- no, 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 not Dana. Give, give, come on. <laughs> At least pretend to be <laughs> On Dead Man's yeah. Island, they found his corpse, it's, if you could call it, his skeleton with yeah. a rope tied around its head and ribs, confirming Shh. that it was either a mutiny situation or he was, in fact, a life-size marionette. <laughs> and from then on came the burials of six Marines from the USS Savannah who died during the Battle of Dominguez Ranch, a.k.a. the Battle of the Old Woman's Gun. In October 1846, that was during the Mexican American War. Also, another English sea captain. Five crew members of a ship called the Mervine. She's beautiful. What do we... What's her name? Mervine. Mervine. You sure you don't want to go with Maria? No. No. This is the name of the love of my life. Mervine. Mervine. Several crew members from a British ship called the Boxer who had a disease outbreak while docked in San Pedro were buried there. Cool. Stay over there. Two passengers from a Panama ship in 1851 and then a Mrs. Parker in 1855 who was the wife of Captain Parker of the Laura Bevan another beautiful part name. of the same fleet as the Mervine. <laughs> the reason this became the burial ground of choice in San Pedro is because it was too hard for coyotes to get to do what they oh do best, God, which help. is dig up and eat your loved ones. <laughs> how bad are coyotes in San Pedro? There was like one thing to eat in all of uh, San Pedro okay. and the coyotes had nothing and they were just eating the corpses. Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta give them credit. <laughs> you gotta respect someone who's willing to fight for your meal. <laughs> Other than being a good place to let the loves of your life rot in peace, it was also used for more living purposes. How? On July 4th, 1853, it was the site of the first joint celebration of American independence by both Americans and Californios. Okay. That's where they celebrated on top of all these corpses. Low tide fun. (laughs) In the 1860s, it was a whaling station run by a Captain Hart. Where's the beef? That's a Captain Beefheart joke. Let it sink in. It hurts. I want it to stop. Just let it sink in. (laughs) I want it to stop. (laughs) That joke. It was rumored to have been a rum runner's base during Prohibition and also supposedly had buried treasure on it, but more than Get that it. it was just it was just a local landmark like it was every picture you'll see of old San Pedro it's always there in the background it was also a location for the 1916 Harold Lloyd movie Lonesome Luke's Wild Women which yeah. is the only known video footage of this place oh, wow. but it did make one huge contribution to the city of Los Angeles that it should always be remembered for in 1871 they built a rock jetty connecting it to its sister island nearby Isla del Calubra de Cascabel aka 
Rattlesnake Island. Oh, boy. Rattler Rock. <laughs> the purpose of this rock jetty was to turn the... That's a stupid name. <laughs> rock jetty, man. Rock jetty. It was to turn the island into a breakwater, okay. and then they added a second jetty connecting it to Tim's Landing, which was in San Pedro, which created an ocean current that removed all the sand and mud from the ocean floor over there, which made the water deeper there so that shipping boats could come dock in San Pedro, allowing San Pedro to become the main port of Los wow. Angeles and allow Santa Monica to remain a nice place to go to Barney's Beanery. So Dead Man's Island found its purpose in the growing city, but oh no, water's a murderer of islands. No, don't say that. I'm saying it, and I'll say it again. The new way- True crime stuff. The new, this is the newest season of Serial. <laughs> Who killed Dead Man's Island? It was you and me. The new wave was hitting it. <laughs> As it got all of us. Depeche Mode, they took it down one rockin' synth solo at a time. <laughs> the new waves hitting it were slowly eroding it and leading to kids uncovering murdered old ship captains and cool. stuff like that. Plus, it was a danger to ships coming in. It stretched out so far into the bay that it could potentially crash a ship. Wow. It was also creating a bottleneck and they needed more space as more ships started coming in there. So how did they repay the island for making shipping there possible? By demolishing it and turning it into the first floating parking lot. No. Don't even, don't you be gullible tonight. I wanted that to be true so badly. No, it's not true. Nothing's true that I'm saying. In, <laughs> uh, in 1916, the U.S. War Department gave up the control they had over the island for 60 years and gave it to the Department of the Treasury, who wanted to flatten it and turn it into a sort of Ellis Island-like immigration station. Oh, wow. But like I said, it was just more efficient to get rid of it, so they began that process in 1927. It took eight dredgers, a steam shovel... How to get rid of an island? Eight dredgers. And a, a steam a shovel. A steam shovel. Yeah. 20 train cars of dynamite and two years that's all it takes not without the island claiming a couple more delicious souls get them two workers were killed in the process on that island by this point the idea that there were dead people buried there was just like a local myth but once they started digging oh boy here come the corpses (laughs) it was uh dem bones (laughs) whatever ones they found were moved including the old u.s marines who were moved to the presidio in san francisco the rest were just thrown across the water to the harborview cemetery awesome uh, eaten by coyotes shortly after (laughs) the dirt of the land was added as an extension onto its sister island of the rattlesnakes, or as you may now know it, Terminal Island. (gasps) So the place where the prison, Coast Guard, and Customs House now stand is on the dirt of the dead men and is now known as Reservation Point. Wow. A reservation I will not be making. (laughs) So the the end tip of Terminal Island is... The remains of... The remains of Dead Man's Island. Yeah, the dead man's remains. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I didn't know... No, I knew nothing about it. I didn't know that. If you went to any huge event in Los Angeles between 1935 and 1972, check your calendar, did you? No, no, no. at home. I was washing my hair. For sure. My phone was off, sorry. Then you would no <laughs> doubt find yourself at the Pan Pacific Auditorium on Beverly and Fairfax. <gasps> oh, yeah! The Pan Pacific Auditorium was built by two brothers who were promoters, Philip and Cliff Henderson. The Hendersons were born in a Quaker colony in Lenox, Iowa, and they moved with the family to California when Cliff was 14. There's more information about Cliff. As part of the first transcontinental trip by motor truck, riding as mascot from Colorado to San Francisco. From early age, Cliff showed a proclivity for organizing and promoting fun, producing circuses and shows for <laughs> the Quakers friends. are best known no, for. Fun. They're not Mormons, bozo. There was an air meet that took place in LA in 1910 and this put the taste of jet fuel in Old Cliff's mouth. 
mouth. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's very sick now. And that's all he wanted to do until there was a day to do something else. He started organizing monoplane building contests to be held. And after he served in World War I, he came back and bought an old Jenny plane from the government. In 1924, he managed his first air show, arranging the departure from and return to Santa Monica of the U.S. Army round the world tour. That's a whole sentence that I wrote. Cliff then started managing local air races based out of Santa Monica and Los Angeles until he was hired to promote the 1928 National Air Races in Los Angeles, which took place at the LA Minefields, which eventually became LAX. The National Air Races were already well established. And LAX pop- is built on a minefield? No, it was called Minefield. It was like called mine, a- like Minecomf? Yeah, like Mine. Yeah, like Minefield. Mine, minefield. Who owns this? Mine. It's mine. <laughs> mine does. The National Air Races were already well established and very popular, but under Cliff Henderson, both the event and the man flourished. He also organized the Western Aircraft Show of 1929, the New York Aircraft Salon of 1930, and the Pan American International Air Races of 1934. He did this for nearly 10 years until 1939 when all the air fun was suspended so the Germans could have Blitzkrieg Boogie. And then <laughs> the, song. the nation got very serious about air stuff. So no more air pleasure, just air business. But in the middle of this, 1933, Cliff and his brother decided to try a new venture. Hmm, land stuff. They were having so much fun promoting organizing, they wanted to create a <laughs> civic auditorium to hold big... S- Who has so much fun organizing? There's Quakers. Some- Quakers. It's vicarious fun. <laughs> no, I want you guys to have a good time. They wanted to build a civic auditorium to hold big deal city events. So they got the very talented, but at the time unknown firm, a Wordman and Beckett to design the building. They've come up before. They've designed Bullocks in Pasadena, the Cinerama Dome, Beverly Hilton, the Peterson Automotive Museum, General Petroleum Building in downtown, Capitol Records, the LA Music Center, the Glendale Central Library. They also designed Walt Disney World Resort. Pan Pacific Auditorium was their very first major commission work. Hmm. If there's anything special about Pan Pacific Auditorium... There true, isn't. Good night. End of podcast. <laughs> Truly, what stands out is the look of the building. It's so fantastic. It's what is referred to as Streamline Modern. Mm. One website called An Expression of Americans Romance with machines and transportation. <laughs> it was America's love for European art deco, the movement of the 20s, fused with ideas of the future. People refer to it as Buck Rogers-esque, and I agree. I read this quote that it embodied a touching faith in technology and profoundly new world hopefulness about an ever-brightening future. What a future that it didn't live up to. Yeah, no, it didn't make it. Um, <laughs> it was a green and white building, and it had four slick towers reaching the sky that resembled aircraft fins. To me, what I really liked about it is that it has a look of like an old plane, an old boat, and an old idea of a spacecraft. Like, all <laughs> Like, it just looks like all these things that I like. The exterior... An aeroboat ship? The exterior front of the building was 228 feet long, but the interior was, as a whole, was 100,000 square feet and could see up to 6,000 people. It was, it was mostly made of wood. Spoiler alert. No. The Anywho, arch nemesis the, of Los Angeles. Wood and parking lots. You'd think a city where we can't find parking, a parking lot would be a good thing, but it's probably not. Originally in the early 30s, during the planning stages of Pan Pacific, the LA Chamber of Commerce had wanted to put the Pan Pacific Auditorium in Elysian Park to make it more central, but eventually settled on Beverly Boulevard in West Hollywood, which was in West Hollywood at the time. 7600 West Beverly Boulevard near Fairfax, situated near another gathering place, Gilmore Park, mm-hmm. which is uh, now uh, CBS Studios. Gilmore Park was where a lot of minor league baseball games were played. Sports stuff. Also, the hot sauce shop at the. Oh, yeah, the hot sauce shop. Specifically. Specifically, yeah. It's near that Chipotle. (laughs) (laughs) Opening day of Pan Pacific Auditorium (laughs) was May 18th, 1935, and it opened to the fanfare. I put fanfare. Fanfare of Boy Scout bugles, while the 500 member 10th Olympiad chorus sang at the dedication ceremonies that Saturday night. So Quaker. I just. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody has to dress like an angel. What? We can get a band. No. Bring the Boy Scouts and their bugles. (laughs) Can we have some beer? No. Cracker Jacks for everybody. (laughs) You 
can all eat saltines. <laughs> Free for everyone. We have to bless them first. Everyone who has not sinned. <laughs> Don't fir- let Jerry Seinfeld have any. <laughs> What's the deal? Get out. The first event held there was a home show aimed at promoting President Roosevelt's signing of Title I Legislative Act, which authorized government loans aimed at aiding homeowners with oh, repairs and renovations. They need to kick the Quakers yeah. out of the planning committee. <laughs> oh, we need some rock and roll. What do kids like? Amendments. <laughs> which one's the handsomer of the Roosevelt's? Well, they can't come. Bring the homely one. Eleanor, bring Eleanor. <laughs> but through the years, Pan Pacific was well used for actual fun things. They had sports events, political events, car shows. They sur- had hoop tosses <laughs> and bird calling marathons. They had quiet time. Quiet time does sound nice, though. I would I would go to a stadium oh for quiet God, imagine time. Imagine that, just sitting in a room full of people and quiet. But not just a room, like a massive room. A massive crowd. Yeah, and everyone's a, quiet. It's a moment of silence. silence. I was going to say, like, right after a Kennedy after, gets like, shot. After, like, a sports announcer died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After someone everyone loves dies, and you're just like, oh. <laughs> No one's saying anything. I'm Boston rules. <laughs> Yo, where's the water closet, mate? Yeah, there was. There was. He's no good to me. <laughs> oh God! Ding, ding, dum, 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 dum. Um, Where's the wing wang wangly water closet? <laughs> there was conventions, circuses, concerts, no, car bu-ba. shows. No, bye No. No disintegration. Aw, oh, dang crud. Don't tell my mama said crud. Don't tell my clone mama. <laughs> I remember being a kid and people, don't tell my mama said crap. I'm like, you're worried about crap? Uh, <laughs> don't tell mom what I did in the water closet. <laughs> there was the Ice Follies in 1939 that was held there. It was ice skating production of the 30s. That would, they made movies about that kind of thing. The Alley Monarchs of the Pacific Coast Hockey yeah, League. Yeah, we talked about those. Yeah, the biggest of the minor league hockey teams played there from the 44 to 50. The Monarchs even won the PCHL title in 1947. In April of 1936, famed conductor Leopold Stokowisk in the Philadelphia Symphony. Sure. Stefanovich? Stokowisk. Jack Stefanovich. Oh, what is it? Stokowisk. That's the one that Bugs Bunny's making fun of. Oh, is it Stokowisk? Say it again. Leopold. 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 That's him. Bugs Bunny came. Him with the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra played two concerts in the Pacific Pacific Auditorium to thousands of people. His programs included Rahm's First Symphony, The Engulfed Cathedral by Debussy, and Stravinsky's Firebird. Debussy. Debussy. Dwight Eisenhower spoke to a beyond capacity audience of 10,000 just Mm. one month before he was elected president of the United States. If it fits 6,000, how did 10,000 fit in there? They sat on his lap? I think it was at capacity, then there was standing room, and then there was people outside. So they didn't get in. You were in the crowd, though. Word travels. like Telephone. Yeah. What'd he say? Tell him that we like Ike. We like Spike. <laughs> oh, no. We Spike Ike. That's a threat. <laughs> Elvis Presley played there in 1957 at the really? height of his fame to 9,000. That's wow. more more than capacity. Screen fans. It's the biggest thing since sliced Ike. <laughs> sliced, sliced Ike, Eisenhower. Which is, which is also a threat. For <laughs> we slice Ike. <laughs> we slice Ike. He encored with Hound Dog, which turned the audience into wild animals. The press called his performance obscene, and Elvis <laughs> said to this, He died in a water closet. My mama. No woman could ever believe I'm going to go die in a water closet. The Harlem Globetrotters played. I'm going to die in a water closet with, with 50 pounds of <laughs> cocaine in my body. The Globetrotters played there among many legitimate the basketball Harlem teams. Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah. How old are they? Each how, individual how, one. How, yeah, how old is Curly Joe? Aren't they like 60s, 70s? I have no idea. No idea. Not LA history, so I have no idea how old the Harlem Globetrotters are. Harlem is not part of LA. I thought it was a remote 
town. A we conquered it. It's like uh, how Vatican City is its own country inside <laughs> of Italy. Harlem is my Vatican City. <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is, at the end of the 30s, the Henderson sold Pan Pacific to a weird name, Arat Loban Cord, who was a big wig in the auto industry. He initially moved to LA to retire, which meant putting a stop to his production of vehicles and concentrating on booking entertainment for his new venue. Midlife. Cal Worthington? <laughs> yeah, like Cal Worthington. He was a midlife crisis. The Hendersons moved on to their new venture for the South. They boosted and were the fathers of Palm Desert in 1946, hmm. which is pretty on brand. The biggest blow to Pan Pacific comes in 1971, after 40 something years of entertaining Angelinos, and it comes in the form of a bigger building, the 720,000 square foot LA Convention Center. Uh-oh. Almost immediately after opening in 1971, all the big city events start gravitating towards the venue since it could accommodate the constantly exploding number of residents in LA. It was made by the Puritans. No. <laughs> Take that. Oh, what do, we, that Quakers. what do we do? We don't know how to fight. That's why we don't fight. We don't know how. We don't know how. We don't get the concept. Roll my hand into a ball and throw it at someone? How? <laughs> it didn't even take a full year for Pan Pacific Auditorium to fold under the pressure wow. of abandonment. It closed down in 1972. God, oh. that's swift. It's, swift it's justice. swift, yeah. Quick death would be a treat, but over the next 17 years, Pan Pacific slowly deteriorated from years of neglect. But because of a large loading door on the southeast corner was way too easy to open, vagrants and vandals would frequent the place and do whatever they wanted to it. There was a number of small fires there. A fire in 1983 damaged the northern end. It was in bad shape, but every once in a while, someone would put it to good use. You could see it through the years. It was in funny face. It was prominent in Xanadu. Devo shot their video, Beautiful World, there. The I city- thought you said good use. San Devo. Bernardino. <laughs> <laughs> San Bernardino, yes. The city kind of thought that was it and they were ready to demolish it. But this ragtag new group of historians and mm. city lovers stepped in and managed Yuck. to get the dang thing registered. With <laughs> ding, a, ding, 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 registered. With the National Register of Historic Places. <laughs> it's turning into Boomhauer. Bobahauer. Boomhauer. No, I'm going to man. Uh, they called... Man. Not letting this one go. This new group called themselves the Alley Conservancy. One of the first things they saved was the Pan Pacific Auditorium. You will hear more about them later. I don't want to. Now the issue of what to do with the space was concerned, but they didn't have much time to think because in 1989, a 42-year-old vagrant set fire to the Pan Pacific Auditorium. What? They don't even know if it's... And that man, Tom Waits. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta put out these camels somewhere, man. Sometimes I walk and I see this thing. I'm like, what are you... Man, come on. No, he's Boomhauer now. I'm getting everyone confused. Everyone's... Boom hour. Man, All don't... of our impressions are boom <laughs> Ask now what you want me to do it. for you, man. <laughs> but, man, you can do for your country. You ever think about that, man? Sometimes I'm just walking down and I see some kind of cloud. I'm like, what is this? Yeah, go Bulls. <laughs> whatever Texas Whatever, whatever Tom Waits sings about vultures. Who knows? <laughs> Anyways, this 42-year-old vagrant, the fire he said completely destroyed the Pampas of Auditorium. More than 200 firefighters tried to put the fire out, but because it was a wooden structure, it destroyed it so fast. There was let it happen. Whatever was left of fire purifies all <laughs> whatever was left of the facade stood until may of 1992 when they cleared away all the old elements of and they tried to make whatever was left which was a must into pan pacific park debris from the demolished pan pacific auditorium had also mixed into the soil making it unsuitable foundation for the new building great then construction disturbed soil contaminated by oil because there's oil yeah. in the area pushing it's back the oil. new we struck a witch but also uh, <laughs> pushing back the new pan pacific's opening date several months the park's department spent almost one million dollars remove the contaminated soil now there's a pan pacific park is there and it has like a smaller replica of it now it's really? one of yeah it's an like, i think it's a branch library lapl branch library and rec center as well there's the fairfax library right there but i think it might be it really and it's called pan pacific park yeah yeah it, pan pacific park is right there and then the fairfax i mean they wouldn't 
because Fairfax Library is like, yeah, on the other side of the park. That's where my dad, that's where I spent most of my youth. That's really? That's where my dad used to work. Really? On, on Beverly and Fairfax, right? Uh, by Farmer's Market? Yeah, right by yeah, the Farmer's Market. It, yeah. And, the, the, and we would walk to the Farmer's Market and, and I get set lunch. fire to the Pacific Auditorium, 1990. I was a 42 year old virgin. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I won't watch that movie. Cut it off at 40. You're too late. You're barren, boy. You're barren. There's nothing there. You're dropping honey mustard. Anyways, the, no. the building now, it's a smaller version of what the Pan Pacific Auditorium. But if you want to get an idea of what... There was a rec center. Ne- I, yeah. Oh, wow. I did, wow, I did not know that. You learn new things when you listen to this podcast. Thank you, Greg. You're welcome. <laughs> Can you leave a review? <laughs> no. no. No, I got no. other things to do. I got to leave a review for lore or whatever. I need hey. to make cereal more popular. <laughs> yeah, so they have a small replica of that building. But also, if you want to see like a grander version of what they were going for with the look, in 2011, the Disney California Adventure Park in Anaheim, California opened the entrance gates and they style it after the Pan Pacific Auditorium, the flag post. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. So that's Pan Pacific Auditorium. I like that story. I, I like that. That story had a happy ending for me because I remembered my childhood. <laughs> it doesn't happen often. I'm Robocop. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> As Greg thinks Robocop ends with Robocop looking at the camera and winking. Not winking, high-fiving. I think it ends with Does him high-fiving. High-five Not high-fiving. Um, thumbs up. Thumbs upping. I right. guess he can't tell if he winks. No, because he doesn't have a face mask at the time. <laughs> have you seen Robocop before? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, it's Judge Red, right? It's the one where Arnold Schwarzenegger goes to Mars. <laughs> That's the one. That's the one, right? So the next one, I'm going to be talking about is uh, it's a double feature it's two buildings that sort of made up a combined sort of civic center of sorts well you had six so if you want to drop one to talk about <laughs> well you think this is a live show where i shake the you can't see but my body exploded to confetti <laughs> go ahead time waits for me <laughs> tom waits for me tom boomhauer waits <laughs> for me um, <laughs> I keep doing it. Piglet Greg is here tonight. <laughs> you guys have heard my pig Jethro sitting on my lap. He wants some screen time, even though we don't have screens. We adopted a pig. He's the official mascot of LA <laughs> Meekly. He rolls around in mud. <laughs> what I'm going to be talking about is the old courthouse and the old oh, Hall yes. of Records building. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Lizard people. Yeah. Before the wizarding world of Harry Potter reshaped the Burbank skyline forever. <laughs> There was another gothic castle compound that defined the look of downtown LA, the wizarding world of court arbitration. <laughs> as long as there's been law in Lawless Angeles, ah, I see what you did father-in-law there. joke. San Bernardino. <laughs> San Bernardino. <laughs> there's been need for a courthouse to enforce these laws or lack thereof. Yeah. The first one this city had was in 1850 inside the Bella Union Hotel, mm-hmm. which was the city's first hotel located on Main Street just north of Temple. That's where Pete Riggs had his barbershop. Really? Yeah. It's all coming together. It's all coming it's together. All coming together they'd rent rooms that were available and decide who should be free or go to prison in between the room being used for high class adultery <laughs> with <laughs> money being transacted go downstairs, get a haircut and get wolf skills mistresses or whatever we were Ru- talking about earlier ruin your family go ahead <laughs> in january 1852 they moved into the home of the county attorney benjamin hayes on main street until november 1853 uh-huh. when the city bought the roche house at spring and court from jonathan temple to hold court literally in until march 18 <laughs> 60 when they rented yet another house from former mayor john nichols on main street to use and his associate jerry dimes yeah, go ahead dad jokes nichols and dimes dad that, jokes that's our comedy duo <laughs> nichols and dimes but it came time for the city to move out of their former mayor's house and get a courthouse of their own get out <laughs> but dad <laughs> i said get out and stop sleeping with my mistress <laughs> So in May 1861, they moved into the Temple Market Block where City Hall now is. It wasn't City Hall, though, and renamed it the Clock Tower Courthouse because it had a clock on all four sides of it, and it was now a courthouse. Wow, there's the creativity. Wait till you hear the name of the next.
next one. This was fine until 1891 when the city outgrew even that and they needed something new. What they came up with was a design by the firm of Curlett, Eisen, and Cuthbertson. One of them's got to be dropped. <laughs> Two bad names with three, come on. I'm looking at you, Curlett. Larry Moe and Curlett. <laughs> a Curlett closet. It was going to be located in the tastiest part of town, Pound Cake Hill, which was, <laughs> <laughs> which was on the south side of Butter and Glaze Street. It was on the south side of Temple between Broadway and Spring, just across the street from what is now City Hall, where the Criminal Justice Center now is next to Grand Park on the other side of the LA Times building. Oh, right. This was the site where Los Angeles High School was, which was the city's first high school. They yeah. demolished it to put this big thing here. <laughs> on April 26, 1888, they laid the cornerstone in a big ceremony presided over by not only the Freemasons, but also a group that called themselves the Knights Templar. <laughs> but oh. I think they were just an Elks Lodge with a really big ego. Like, I can't imagine the... <laughs> yeah, it is one of those old men yeah. clubs that yeah. has named... I'm sure it goes back centuries. Where the Covenant they, like, of... stabbed the dragon yeah. at some point. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. sure the Elks once stabbed the dragon. <laughs> they weren't always old. Sometimes they were young. No, they were always old. Born old. Baby boss. Cookies are for closers in the outside. I, I want to quit this podcast right now. I saw a trailer today when I was watching Kong for Baby Boss, and they they said cookies are for closers in that trailer. I wanted to walk out. <laughs> I wanted to burn that. <laughs> I screamed like Kong. They had a whole pro- during back to the Knights Templar. Yeah, they had a whole procession through the streets of downtown LA, complete with a choir and the ceremonial drinking out of the Holy Grail. That's a nap. Also in attendance was a young Mary Foy. She watched this all happen. Really? Yeah, the librarian. Mary librarian. Foy? Yeah. It wasn't until 1892 that the building was completely and what they had was considered one of the biggest and most impressive Richardsonian Romanesque behemoth in California. It had stone walls, turrets, arcades, not the fun kind again. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, this arch is dinging. They had chateau roofs and a huge clock tower with clocks on all sides of it, one of which had the numbers from one of the old clock tower courthouse clocks on it. What really made it stand out, though, was that it was all made out of red sandstone, so it stood out from any way. Like, it was red like bright red like dark but vibrant red and you could see it anywhere like it was that sounds dramatic it was was dramatic is exactly (laughs) the word this was the sixth courthouse location the city had had and the third time it was actually in its own building and not just renting a room at an almost brothel but this was the first building the city had ever built specifically to be a courthouse it cost $518,000 and was referred to as the red sandstone courthouse but the only official name I could find of it was Los Angeles County Courthouse number three. Jeez. They went the Led Zeppelin route. <laughs> Zoso? <laughs> <laughs> they used it not only as a courthouse, but it also has the post office, the U.S. District Court, and a few other federal agencies. A couple years after they opened, they added an open-air elevator shaft oh, that no, sounds no. not only terrifying and unsafe, even by late 1800 standards. Uh, execution chamber? <laughs> Watch people die from, <laughs> from 40 feet up. It became a local tourist attraction. Like, come to town, ride the open-air. Look, the, look at the hole that's just shooting you into the sky. Who wants to see the void? <laughs> Another attraction of a sort was built in 1905 called Court Flight or Court's Flight. Oh yeah, we, that was part of Angel's Flight, right? Yeah, well it was a sister to Angel's Flight. Yeah. A sister? Sister. Oh, a... please don't disintegrate her. Uh, gosh, ding dolly, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> ding dolly, fine! <laughs> so it would bring you up or down the hill to the courthouse. It started on Broadway between First and Temple and brought you a whopping 200 feet to get you to your mm-hmm. indictment hearing on time. <laughs> it was billed as the shortest railway in the world it ran until 1943 when all railways were melted down into bullet trains for, for the war, the war effort. effort. One of the not-lizard people underground tunnels also used to connect this courthouse to the also-now-gone county jail. Okay. But here's the rub. Um, rub me. <laughs> 
Here's the rub. Here's the Thank rub. Thank you. Here's the rub. My sore back. <laughs> when the courthouse opened, the population of LA was 108,336, but by 1933, the city's population would be almost 2.5 million. Yeah, it's crazy. So the city was growing fast, and that meant more records and information and court cases had to be taken care of out of this big red building. That meant more staff and less space for everybody. So what they decided on was to build an equally monstrous building right <laughs> next door to the courthouse to create this, like I said, it's like a civic hub for all your needs to keep tabs on the population. <laughs> to do this, they got architects Frank Hudson and William Munsell, who had also done the LA County Hospital, and in 1909 started construction on what became known as the Hall of Records. They only build stuff that looks haunted. Yeah. <laughs> we specialized in the damned. <laughs> it cost a million dollars to build, and despite a plot to blow it up with dynamite during okay. construction that was thwarted by an anonymous tip... Get the McNamara brothers back here. It opened in 1911 just northwest of the old courthouse, where the current Hall of Records now is. It was a gothic style and was 12 stories high, with the top split into two wings. I'm drinking a Red Bull, man. <laughs> uh, I want to quit! Cookies are for closers! I want to quit! <laughs> it was a building that stood out enough on its own, but paired next to the big red courthouse, it was really it caught your eye. Even more so when in the 20s they straightened out all the streets around there, but they oh, left yeah. the Hall of Records standing at a weird angle. <laughs> so there were all these like straight aligned buildings, and then this like uh, Hall of <laughs> Records! But even with this, there eventually wasn't enough room between these two buildings. Yeah. They built the Hall of Justice in 1925 to take some of the stress off the buildings and in the 30s they started renting out space in whatever other buildings downtown would let them because they just didn't have room. But that wasn't what ended up doing these buildings in. The problem was themselves. The courthouse was falling apart, literally. On February 10th, 1932, a chunk of the clock tower broke off and fell through the judge's office. Save the clock tower. <laughs> no. <laughs> Stop it's asking too me to scary. do that. Nobody was hurt, but the chunk was no longer allowed to cross state lines. <laughs> then, just two months later, a glass skylight fell into a filled courtroom. Again, nobody was injured, but there was suspected collusion between the glass and the chunk. <laughs> to try to fix these constant collapses, they removed 12 tons of rock from the building and anchored the outside of it. And then came March 10th, 1933. A 6.25 magnitude earthquake hits Long Beach. How do big stone buildings handle earthquakes? Remind me? They normally grow bigger. Oh, I got a wing! That must have been a Red Bull <laughs> earthquake. Dad jokes back. Cookies are for closer. Give me that cookie. Uh, the show sponsored by dads. Brought to you by your father. <laughs> He's not happy with you. <laughs> he wants you to call him. The courthouse was severely damaged by this, and after a huge aftershock on October 24th, the LA County Board of Supervisors vote to remove the entire building. By October 1934, the building was abandoned for demolition, but in 1935, they realized that if they could just remove the top two floors, the rest of the building would still be safe to use. Mm -hmm. So in July of that year, they got rid of the clock tower. Again, no saving the clock tower. Yeah. And did what I've been being commanded to do for years now and raise the roof right off. <laughs> and they put on a safer roof, which is the way to do it. Yeah, if you're going to raise the roof, also replace it with a safer <laughs> Please, one. Please, have the common decency. <laughs> one of the clocks was given to the Natural History Museum and the removal of it was officially called a clockectomy. Oh! Oh! Founding fathers joke. <laughs> but later that year, they decided that now the building was too ugly. So they turned it. My problem has been for years is that people considered me they too ugly. They treated their buildings like they treated their women. Lose weight. You're too skinny. I'm divorcing you. My wife needs a clockectomy, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I've got a clockectomy <laughs> around the face. So they turned it into a WPA project that created lots of jobs and they started tearing it down for good January 1936 and were finished by May 12th of that year when the destruction ended with an open 
opening of the time capsule that had been put in the building's cornerstone during that ceremony. Inside had such exciting things as a bank book of the LA City Public Schools circa 1888, a copy of that day's LA Times, a bird's eye view picture of the Santa Ana Valley, still there, a two cent stamp, a medical prescription, a program for the 62nd anniversary ball of the International Order of Odd Fellows, and a blank piece of paper. Which probably had some like secret yeah. message written on it, but it kill got, Hitler. It's not too late. <laughs> also in attendance was an old Mary Foy. She saw go up oh, and come down. Wow, that hurts my feelings. Yeah. What's time? What's time like? <laughs> Save the clock tower. Yep. You would have found out. I just realized that a time travel movie and the focus of it is a clock tower. A clock tower. I never even thought yeah. about that. Weird. Yeah. It's a pretty deep movie. My favorite part is when my, he hits Biff. My favorite line is manure. <laughs> so the courthouse was gone. Ding, dang, diddly manure! <laughs> Big bang, buttly butthead! <laughs> so the courthouse was gone, but starting from when it had been abandoned, the Hall of Records was being used for courthouse purposes. They also used it in the 40s to give free living quarters to military vets after World War II. It's like, you know, get your own place, guys. <laughs> We've given you enough. We've given you PTSD. What more do you want? But not even the Hall of Records. The key of time could resist how little time cares about anything. By the 50s, it was called a fire trap by the fire department, but of course, it was still being used. Put more vets in there. Then in the 60s, they were sick of the weird angle it was sitting at. It was too ugly, and they considered rotating the entire building. Can't we just, I mean, turn it? Can we just look at it different? <laughs> but that would have cost $5 million. I don't even understand how you could move a building. So yeah. instead, they built a replacement designed by Richard Nutra in 1962 okay. and demolished the old one in 1973 to make way for a a beautiful parking lot. This time, that is true. That spot is now a part of Grand Park. But where will ye be judged when there is no official courthouse, Greg? Where? The Lord's house. No, I won't go. He won't have me. He won't let me in because I sneezed onto his tablecloth. <laughs> the old one was gone by the late 30s. The courthouse then World War II hit and building a courthouse wasn't on anyone's mind unless it was yeah. in Nuremberg. <laughs> then after the war, several bond measures to build a new one failed and then there were steel shortages once the Korean War started. So this led to some something of a crisis where the city had no courthouse for 26 years. Everyone's off. Everyone. Everything's legal Hall right pass. Now. They had to borrow court employees from other counties and used any building they could find. Like I said, they used the Hall of Records, City Hall, yeah. the Hall of Justice, some old municipal court buildings, the Patriotic Hall. They even used the Lincoln Heights Jail as a courthouse. Jeez. It wasn't that until... old haunted yeah. butt face. Oh, the one with the empty elevator shaft? Yeah, that old haunted butthead? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they needed places with open air elevators. <laughs> it wasn't until January 5th, 1959 that they opened the Los Angeles Angeles County Courthouse designed by our old friend Paul R. Williams at First and Hill, renamed the Stanley Mosque Courthouse in 2002. Mm-hmm. The clock on this one has the numbers from the clock on the old oh, red really? sandstone one that had been given to it by the old clock house. Traditions. One. This Traditions. is a town where we drag the past into a new parking lot. <laughs> where everybody could be a parking lot if they try hard enough. Also, the original cornerstone of the red courthouse is still at its old site at the southeast corner of Temple and Spring. You can yeah. go see it. There's cool. no blank pieces of paper left in it. Aww. Sorry. Sorry, treasure hunters. I want to open a time capsule and just find a bunch of stuff from like 1999. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like a Los Lobos ticket <laughs> to a show. I was obsessed with the idea of a time capsule when I was younger. Really? I might have buried one in my old backyard. We got to go break it. It's got some dude's hand in it. <laughs> this next one, I'm going to need you to get up while I'm talking and do the Charleston. You ready? Dun, 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 dun. Dun. Oh, no. 
Oh no, I've oh, no, broken I'm, my hips. I made water closet. Oh no. <laughs> the Coconut Grove was not a ritzy nightclub, okay? It was the ritziest nightclub of its day, and it mm. epitomized the glamour of the golden age of Hollywood. The Coconut Grove was the nightclub situated within the famous Ambassador Hotel mm-hmm. on Wilshire. Here's the two times you've mentioned it. In Warm California Gun, you mentioned that Robert Kennedy was shot in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel. <laughs> Spoiler. And in the First Timers Club, you mentioned that Paul Revere Williams redesigned the Ambassador yeah. of the Coffee Shop and the Coconut Grove. Thanks for doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> I'm so strong. Preemptive, but I won't go too much into this. The owner is the ambassador from opening day till closing with the Shines, S-C-H-I-N-E-S, David Shine being the president of the Shine Enterprises. That's all. That's all. Right. I, I, <laughs> I just felt weird not mentioning that at some point. Mm-hmm. Who owned the damn mm-hmm. thing? The ding-dang-darn-darn-thing-doodly-shiners. <laughs> so the Ambassador Hotel opened on New Year's Day, 1921, surrounded by Bean and Barley Fields. <laughs> Which was, is our other comedy team. <laughs> <laughs> it was immediately a hot spot. And to get an idea of what the ambassador like, think of like a top shelves of Vegas casino, like the win or the Bellagio but in a way better desert and there wasn't much of a casino <laughs> but surrounded by barley <laughs> barley that hasn't been turned to beer yet the ambassador was what many called a mini city it had 1200 rooms and included 37 shops a private school a bowling alley a theater a golf course now here's what I didn't know an assassination and I, chamber why are we eating in the assassination chamber <laughs> shut up now here's what I didn't know and I haven't had a lot of luck looking into but the ambassador had Los Angeles's first nightclub not the Coconut Grove uh-huh. the original nightclub of the ambassador was called the Zania Z-I-N-N IA grill the Zania grill it was located on the casino level not a casino of the hotel and its decor it's a casino like an arcade is an arcade yeah exactly yeah its decor was black polished satin and it was affectionately named the black patent leather room which is precisely the kind of kinky bondage atmosphere you want to go for in 20s Hollywood <laughs> make sure to use it as a water closet <laughs> not only was Hollywood becoming more popular but so was the city as you remember the 1920s saw an insane growth of people populated mm-hmm. the area management quickly realized that the space in the Zania grill was too small to cater to their clients which they saw as country club goons and the gold-covered rats of the big screen, as well as your run-of-the-mill actual hotel guests. Thus, the grand thousand-seat ballroom, which was part of the hotel, quickly converted to the Coconut Grove. Hmm. The Coconut Grove opened three months later in April 1921. Located near the east wall of the complex was the Coconut Grove nightclub. Originally, it was designed by Myron Hunt, who had his name on such landmarks as the Huntington Estate, including the Huntington Hotel, the Hospital, Huntington Residence, now the Art Gallery, Huntington Library. He designed the Rose Bowl, Occidental College, passing a public library for the coconut grove he used a moroccan style and it's the dreamiest ballroom have you seen <laughs> pictures of coconut grove before i don't think i have it's what clifton's wants to be like the the atmosphere of like i'm got not bears home. everywhere yeah it's got bears everywhere listen to what i had everywhere okay so first the doors which the I doors th- were the, there the doors were there jim morrison in the 20s just as annoying as ever the doors <laughs> of the coconut grove were amazing and i saw a picture of somebody standing next to them so they might still be up i don't know yeah i forget parts of it are still up yeah, i think the doors of the coconut I, grove are i think still there up. was something they did try to save parts of the yeah i remember that I think when, it might they, be like when a they turned it into a, like four schools yeah four schools yeah four schools and a knife fight ring <laughs> the doors were a gold leaf and etched palm tree doors with beautiful arches above the door when you walked in you came down a grand staircase designed to make an entrance hollywood style sunset boulevard style <laughs> there were mechanical monkeys with glowing eyes and they all hung from full-size paper mache palm trees that were supposedly used from the film the chic that is cool and terrifying yeah I know. There were coconuts and palm fronds which hailed from the exotic and sandy beaches of Oxnard, California. <laughs> on the southernmost wall, there was a full... Heaven. Hole. <laughs> can you imagine? I, I hope one day I can save up to go there. Did you get my postcard from Oxnard? <laughs> on the southernmost wall, there was a full Hawaiian moon hanging low over a painted landscape and an actual waterfall. The ceiling was painted midnight blue with sparkling stars sprinkled throughout. Uh, that's nice. I like 
yeah like that. it was a high ceiling it was lit it, it was like in my head and from the black and white photos i've seen like it's super ritzy but also kitsch it manages to be both and without <laughs> being insulting <laughs> that does sound it sounds like a mixture of clifton's and what the hotel figaroa used to be yeah exactly oh perfect yeah from the offset there was the best jazz bands playing there big bands swing orchestras crooners the big bad voodoo daddies yeah they were there the uh, doors squirrel and zippers the doors <laughs> the house musical director was mr coconut grove himself freddie martin who hosted a radio show that broadcast live and featured a very young vocalist by the name of merv griffin what one of the more popular bands merv griffin was a singer i guess one of the more popular bands at the time was gus arnheim and his orchestra along with art hickman who had a even relationship with the grove as they made each other more famous art hickman made the grove famous coconut grove made Art Hickman. it's yeah bing crosby became famous when he was heard on the radio singing from the coconut grove mm-hmm. dean martin got his big break after an appearance there at the grove harry balafonte's first big supper club was at the coconut grove huh. it was the place to be also something happening in the 20s that required nightclubs the jazz age the roaring 20s flapper mania a uh, young f scott drink till hospitalization fitzgerald <laughs> called the coconut grove that's what F stands for. Yeah, it was to drink till hospitalization. <laughs> he called the Coconut Grove the greatest, gaudiest spree in American history. I'm sure when he was hung over as hell. Ding dong, oh hell. <laughs> Not his best quote, but then again, Zelda wrote those for him. So in October of... Hey, hey, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. In 19... Oh, boy. There's so many things in here that... In October of 1930, there was a birthday for three two-year-olds. Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, and Pluto. Blowing up the candles was Daddy Walt Disney. Marion Davies, the lover of Citizen Kane himself, William Randolph Hearst. One night she rode a white horse through the lobby into a costume party in the Grove for the amusement what? of Hearst, to which he answered when someone asked him if he was surprised. He's like, yeah, indeed, she hates horses. Uh, yeah, there was only one horse. <laughs> she was supposed to bring me eight. To coincide with the 1932 Olympics, the Grove held the ball of all nations, honoring prominent visitors from other nations. There were themed nights like the Frolic Night or College Night or Stars Night. Starve were- Night? Stars Night. Oh, I prefer to go to Starve Night. We're not serving you anything <laughs> gandhi night <laughs> these nights were actually attended by stars by actual stars like previously mentioned by starves gandhi was there all the stars of today's <laughs> silver screen gandhi. gandhi like previously mentioned this was one of the many backgrounds of golden era hollywood the frequency of the grove were chaps like charlie chaplin <laughs> douglas fairbanks chili dog ghoul mary pickford oh, of course the chic himself rudolph valentino in, uh, my palm trees <laughs> how do you get those my darling gloria swanson through the years you'd get a jean harlow you'd get a carol lombard you'd get a jimmy stewart you'd get a <laughs> Cary grant you'd get a sexual deviant like clark gable there were dance contests that drew in a lot of people who wanted to be famous but from that long list of nobodies you had people who got discovered like Joan Crawford, Hardy, Loretta Young. Some of the earliest photos the of old Loretta Young. The, yeah, <laughs> Loretta Old. Some of the earliest photos of Marilyn Monroe as the model Norma Jean were taken at the Coconut Grove. Not, not at the Coconut Grove, but at the pool at the Ambassador, but it was just, it was in the mix, okay? I don't want to hear uh, it. We're not okay. talking about the pool. We're not talking about the pool. <laughs> Greg, this isn't the pool at the Ambassador, okay? We're talking about the Coconut Grove on the other side. W.C. Field, my hero, and his drunk drinking buddy John Barrymore could be found there nightly. God. Barrymore used to bring a live monkey to the club and it would mingle with the monkey dolls. His brother Lionel Barrymore one up his brother and brought seven monkeys and set them loose in the room. What? Where do these celebrities get? What was the 20s? Hey, Zoo? <laughs> I need seven monkeys for a joke. I'm a Barrymore. It's funny. <laughs> Thanks to the LAPL, the menus are online. Let's read some entries, shall oh, we? Oh, God. Here we go. Grapefruit Supreme. Is that grapefruit covered? <laughs> <laughs> covered in ketchup and mayonnaise? <laughs> with an olive sticking out of it for some reason. Large, ripe green olives stuffed with anchovies. <sighs> Welsh rarebit sandwich. Oh, Eggnog punch. Oh. Platter of assorted cold cuts. That just sounds funny. Like you just order <laughs> a platter. Cut, yeah. <laughs> and then a cherry's jubilee, among other oh, things. And I wanted to end on a good one. It has tuna in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly cottage cheese. Cherries back in in this era meant something. It's just bruised fist that we cut off some poor person. 
The very first Academy Awards was not held at Coconut Grove, but the Roosevelt Hotel. The second and third annual Academy Awards were hosted at Coconut Grove. Wow. But the first award ceremony where they gave Oscars away was the second one, which was at the Coconut Grove in 1930. Hmm. It was also the first place of the Golden Globes that was celebrated, but nobody cares about the Golden Globes. The first of Academy Jimmy Awards. Fallon does. <laughs> Have you thought about Ellen DeGeneres lately, huh? Her feelings? Between 1930 and 1943, there were six Oscar ceremonies hosted at the Coconut Grove. In 1937, the prestigious animation world, which employed all sorts of angry goons from the fringes of entertainment business, paid tribute to the nightclub in the particularly slanderous Mary Melody short Cuckoo Nut Grove. Just to point out some examples, Catherine Hepburn is a grotesque horse. <laughs> W.C. Fields is a sloppily dressed pig. That's stating facts. Yeah, no, we just go, yeah, verbatim what I saw <laughs> when I went there. It was one that I remember seeing a lot when I was a kid. It was 1990 or whatever, and I didn't had no idea who they were referencing, but it was, it really grossed me out. <laughs> and now I'm an adult and I know who they were referencing, they still gross me out. During the war years, Coconut Grove was very popular with servicemen who wanted to show themselves or their special ladies a good time or to go stag and hopefully hook up with Rita Hayworth when Orson Welles was too preoccupied eating everything. <laughs> he was face deep in a cherry jubilee <laughs> and not the kind you're thinking of. He was a one man buffet. When, of course, they were beating up Mexican youth during the rights. Where did my horse go? I was taking a bite out of him. All the servicemen were enjoying the Coconut Grove when they, of course, they weren't beating up Mexican youth during Zoot Zoot rights. Because <laughs> isn't Fleet Week crazy? They also had a thing during the war where... They used to invite any customer who bought war bonds to conduct the orchestra in a number. Oh my god. Freddie Martin, Mr. Coconut Grove, said about it. It was fun when they would direct a simple number, but we were in trouble <laughs> when amateurs decided they wanted to direct Rhapsody in Blue or Tchaikovsky or whatever. They would often let Mickey Rooney sit on the drums for big band numbers because drums oh, were the no. only thing he could bang without the authorities being involved. <laughs> <laughs> the pleasure in writing that sentence. The pure pleasure of putting down a dead star. Mickey Rooney. I'm not dead, baby. I'm still here. Where's the lady's ass. You're gross, Mickey Rooney. No, I'm not. <laughs> I like to make a gross cartoon of me. I am my own gross cartoon. I like that you think he's Nixon. Nixon. I'm kind of a crook. I make no pretension. I, I am a crook. Where are the cameras at? What are you doing? She's no good to be dead. <laughs> Damn it! In 1949, Paul Revere Williams made the extensive renovations to the interior and exterior of the Ambassador. What year was that? 1949. Hmm. They paid him the plump sum of $10 million to add a new swimming pool, junior-sized golf course. He also built 500 bungalows, which would connect the Ambassador via the non-hunted tunnels. From the 20s to the 60s, everyone who was anyone played the Grove. Alan Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, Louis Armstrong, The Supremes, Nack and Cole, Sonny and Cher, Patty Page, Phyllis Diller, Louis Armstrong, George Carlin, Buddy Hackett, mm. Buddy Vinton. Oh, sorry, Bobby Vinton. <laughs> Buddy Vinton was not invited. Peggy Lee, the Righteous Brothers, Johnny Mathis, Ray Charles, Louis Prima, who was King Louis, Pearl Bailey, Eartha the guy from the Big Bad Voodoo Daddies. <laughs> he was in Squirrel Nut Zippers and The Doors. It was a regular hangout for the Rat Pack in the 50s. Sammy Davis Jr. recorded a live album there. Judy Garland, Sage Your Comeback there. Like I said, it was the backdrop for upper tier Hollywood stories. It wasn't James Dean and Vampire hanging out at Googie's Diner at 240 <laughs> waiting for Midge to put warm milk over steak or whatever food was. Can I get more polenta on this? This was where the real Hollywood famous people stuff. Unfortunately, the turning point for the wonderment that was Coconut Grove was in 1968, as it was the backdrop for the dreadful assassination of Robert Kennedy in the hotel kitchen by stupid Sirhan Sirhan. And almost overnight, the shock of the assassination put a stain on the history of the ambassador, and with that, the Coconut Grove. But it wasn't the only thing. Popular music taste had been changing since the 50s when rock and roll replaced big band orchestras, and then the fake folk bands followed them. I hate the birds so much. I don't like the mamas and the papas. Mama Cass is fine. Mamas and papas are trash to me. Late 60s, early 70s, movie stars were no longer glamour 
Hopper goddesses either. Independent movies were beginning to garner more attention, and people like Dennis yeah, Hopper, Dirty Boys, Dennis Hopper, and Warren Jack Beatty, Nicholson. Jack Nicholson were becoming upper tier Hollywood stars. Who's gonna get to the goal? Warren Beatty, the man who ruined the Oscars. <laughs> Moonlight. I mean, the other one. And the Oscar goes to trolls. <laughs> They're not even yeah. here today. The they people. Left, they left half an hour yeah. ago. Imagine if it had been like because it was the category. It just happened to be she won for a movie that also happened to be like what if yeah. it was a movie that wasn't even nominated oh for God. best picture that oh would have been so God. funny and best picture goes to fast and the furious six faster furious sir and then everyone shoots them like the other <laughs> bonnie and Clyde. Spoiler. put the hat on um i wrote the sentence and it doesn't make sense anymore but i want to say it anyway who's gonna go to coconut grove walter matthau <laughs> you're right it doesn't make sense <laughs> nightclubs were just not the thing to do anymore acid was the thing you don't need a beautiful ballroom to the acid mom sometimes you just need a basement couch and a friend you trust mom <laughs> las vegas nevada was now the scene for all that mm. hedonistic rich people stuff it was used through the years but never really kept up it was the location for several movies and music videos the most important in my opinion being the 1987 taping of roy orbison's hbo special roy orbison and friends the piano player for buddy holly was there and tom waits tom waits tom waits was one of the friends yeah that and 42 year old vagrant yeah this- <laughs> He somehow always aged 42. In 1989, the ambassador checks out of the landmark game and takes with it the Coconut Grove nightclub. Mm. LA landscape had changed and it was time for a parking lot to be put up there. Or LAUSD purchased the vacant complex that mm-hmm. used to be the ambassador in 2001. But there was, again, the LA Conservancy stepped in and was like, no way. But then in 2005, it was demolished. There's, like we said, a school there now. And in the auditorium of that school, you can hear the ghost of Mickey Rooney yelling at a woman. Get over here! What are you doing that far away from me? Let me just finish my cream steak. <laughs> That's the Coconut Grove. I I'm pretty sure that they did manage to incorporate some parts of it into the school. Yeah. Listen to that episode, the uh, uh, Warm California, California Gun, Gun episode, because yeah. we do mention that. We just don't remember anything. I'm going to go to the final one for the evening, the Richfield Tower. <gasps> I've been wanting to know so much about this for a long time, and I don't want to do the research myself. But thank, thank you for doing it. Greg just boomhowered himself. <laughs> he made boomhower in his pants. Um, that's diarrhea. Oil is what this next building was all about. Soil is what it was built on. You're making me recoil. <laughs> the company, Richfield Oil, the mm-hmm. year 1905. Mm-hmm. Just another oil company that starts up in the western oil swamp that is Los Angeles. <laughs> they took their sweet time and waited until 1917 to open up their first service station at Slauson and Central. But this was the town of Doheny. This was the town of Gilmore. Get it. This was the town of Getty. Get it. 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 So Richfield wanted a bold way to assert their dominance. Yep. In 1929, Big the Wang. <laughs> They opened Big Wings. <laughs> Chicken Wings is how he did it. In 1929, the company got Styles O. Clements, which is my fashion name, <laughs> the guy who did the El Capitan oh. the theater and, oh, and the Mayan to design. Really? Yeah. They got him to design what they called a monument to petroleum. Oh, gross. The result was oh, the, gross. the Richfield Oil Company building, a.k.a. Richfield Tower. It cost $1.75 million and was built in a record 31 days. Are you serious? Yeah. 24 like, hours stay, keep working. The Empire State Building, yeah. they built that in like three months. Like everyone was so desperate for work and to have lunch on a steel beam. <laughs> it was modeled after the Radiator Building in New York City. Okay. You've probably seen it. I thought it was the Ghostbusters Building, but it's not. A, it's a really good looking building. It's a color scheme of black and gold to represent the black gold that Richfield made its fortune in. Oh, okay. Oil. Texas tea? Dino juice. 
colors. The tiles on it were actually dark green and they just looked black in the sun, but the windows were accentuated with gold that had actual 14 karat gold sprinkled into it. This, along with the radiator building, were the only two black and gold office towers ever completed in the United States. Pretty sexy. It really is. This is a very good looking building. (laughs) A very Very erotic building. (laughs) I'm very turned on right now. I would very much like for you to take your pants off. (laughs) It was an office tower. That's what it was. It was used as the headquarters for the Richfield Oil Company. It was at five. 555 South Flower Street and was described as the epitome of zigzag modern style which is a type of art deco like there was streamline and then zigzag and that was all fell under the art deco banner and it was probably the nicest art deco building on the west coast at the time and if it was still here it still would be every art deco LA book I pick up it's like 80 pictures of this (laughs) there was so much going on with the building so we'll start from the bottom and work up like another art deco lover King Kong I want to flapper bring me a flapper i want everything the 20s known for <laughs> i'm visiting in this country <laughs> i just want to get a little taste of everything i want to down a subway car <laughs> grab a flapper and climb an art deco masterpiece i also want to attend a mass grouping of something but then leave in a hurry <laughs> i want to be on vaudeville <laughs> it had a two-story underground parking structure which was one of the first ever put into an office building above the main entrance were four figures representing aviation industry navigation and the postal service There were six incredibly ornate and huge elevator doors. And on April 20th, 1929, two freight elevators were put in, making them the first ever on the West Coast. Really? The building itself was actually, it was a U-shape with this front facade uniting the two sides that were facing flower. The 12th floor was a social hall that hosted not just company events, but also became a, like, that was the place in town to go to to hold your special event. Imagine the quinceaneras. (laughs) The most special event you can imagine, an open mic. (laughs) Open mic comedy and poetry. On the roof was a rooftop garden, and it was guarded on all sides by these gargoyle slash Roman gladiator statues that went all around the rim of the building. On top of all that was why it was called Richfield Tower and not Richfield Gargoyle Nursery. Jutting 130 feet out of the roof was a giant tower that had the name Richfield on all sides in neon letters that were eight feet tall each with a bright bulb on top, giving it the look of an oil well gusher. Gusher. You ever eaten gushers <laughs> this so sexy it is this building is so it, sexy it is it's a very sleek building yeah. again sexy. take my pants off <laughs> then on top of all of that was a zeppelin docking station for when that technology inevitably took off no pun intended because zeppelins are now known for doing the opposite <laughs> of taking off the tower alone became an icon and was used in the designs of a few of the richfield service stations yeah. that they had the building got an exemption from the city's height limit of 150 feet to stretch up to 13 stories that with the tower on top went up to 372 feet second only to city hall it was a literal symbol of industry and made a bold statement announcing richfield to the city and the country as an oil leader this was their coming out party they came out of the water closet (laughs) it was the architect's favorite thing he did but when it first opened it was criticized for being overly ornate and gaudy but still it was striking and it was the dominant image on the la skyline for a really long time and richfield was going strong and then the depression hit and in order to prevent a collapse richfield oil 
oil had to merge with several other companies in 1936, such as the Los Angeles Oil and Refining Company and the Rio Grande Oil Company from El Paso. All, you can't fit all those letters up there. We're going higher. Ah, Get more, on the Zeppelin. We need more neon. Yeah. Get a blimp up there. <laughs> the Rio Grande Oil Company made their fortune supplying gas to the U.S. military fighting Pancho Villa. So all of these companies and a few more, they rebranded this new conglomerate, the Richfield Oil Corporation, and they were literally back in business. In 1938, they opened the California Carson Oil Refinery, and then World War II was very good to them, except for one incident. You may remember from our podcast That Time Forgot episode about how in 1942, a rogue Japanese submarine shelled an oil field in Santa Barbara. It wasn't just any oil field. That was a Richfield oil field. Really? Yeah. And that was the first attack on the U.S. mainland since the War of 1812 in our very own backyard, which is what Santa Barbara is. (laughs) Not in my backyard. And Oxnard is where we keep our trash cans. (laughs) A couple scary incidents happened at the tower. On August 30th, 1950, a guy named Dudley Eugene Brown took one of the elevators up to the 12th floor lounge and jumped off the building. Oh, my. Luckily, one of the gargoyles took it upon himself to try to save him, so he bounced off the gargoyle and then fell to his death on the street. Well, Gargoyle's not that good at catching. They're meant to scare. (laughs) Scared him, for sure. (laughs) The sheriff's deputy was quoted as saying, at first I thought it was a gag. It looked like a dummy or something. Then on August 12, 1953, two painters fell from the tower, and this time they were caught by the 12th floor and managed to get away with only having fractured every part of their body that makes them human. (laughs) But they survived that. Less scary was what the company got up to a couple years later when a soon-to-be frozen head named Walt Disney, celebrator of fictional birthdays he decided to open a theme park it was a real birthday <laughs> it was real they're real <laughs> they're i've real. seen them i've taken pictures with them he's threatened me on this podcast before <laughs> he was opening a theme park huh Weird. a section of the park focused on the technology of the future and he needed a sponsor <gasps> for that Richfield stepped in and became the official gasoline of Disneyland. They put on Tomorrowland, including what was originally known as Richfield Autopia. Really? Yeah, they created Autopia. Isn't that weird? That's so strange. There was even a Richfield service station at the Disneyland Hotel, and they remained a sponsor at Disneyland until 1970. Is that lucrative, being part of Disneyland? No. That's not lucrative. They're not in it for the money at Disneyland. (laughs) They're in it for the magic. It's $150 a ticket because they gotta keep putting water into Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) Just a year after getting this deal with Disney in 1956, Richfield Oil also discovered the first commercial oil field in Alaska. So they were doing just fine. And then the 60s hit. In 1962, the Justice Department... The doors came. Come and knock on our doors. (laughs) The Justice Department's here. In 1962, they started investigating the merger that saved the company back in 1936, and it was looking like they had violated some antitrust laws. Okay. So their options were either to start selling off their interest or in some way that's legal that I don't understand, double down and join up with another company that could get them out of trouble. And in typical oil company fashion, that's exactly what they did. They made like Scooby-Doo and jumped into Shaggy's arms <laughs> being Atlantic Petroleum and became yeah. the Atlantic Richfield Company or ARCO. I feel sick. I feel like I have motor oil in my mouth. I feel like a young Cliff Henderson. Um. <laughs> but now with two companies working under one roof, they needed more room under that roof and suddenly Richfield Tower just wasn't big enough for them. They tried to make it work, but instead they just decided that only half the building was still usable. Did they raise the roof? You couldn't because there's a giant tower <laughs> on top of it. A few disjointed groups fought against the demolition, but this was in the height of Bunker Hill being raised and uglified. And on top of that, Art Deco wasn't pretty anymore in the 60s. Yeah. So a handful of small groups didn't have a 
chance against any of this. So on November 12, 1968, they began to tear the building down, as they said, with tears in our eyes, which is not a safe way to operate heavy machinery. Mm-hmm. No. But they didn't just stop with the Richfield Tower. They decided to raise the entire block that was between 5th and 6th and Flower and Figueroa. They got rid of the IBM building, an apartment building, a car rental place, Dawson's bookstore, and the Douglas Oil building with the intention of turning this whole block into a mini Rockefeller Center that included the twin Arco Towers that went up in 1970 uh-huh. and a few others that opened up in 1972, becoming the Atlantic Richfield Plaza and now City National Plaza. These 52-story towers have the distinction of their own of defining everybody's favorite architectural style, corporate modernism. <laughs> 90s ponytail. They set the model for office building style in the 70s and 80s. The four figures that were above the front of the tower were donated to the UC Santa Barbara Art and Design Museum, and then in 1982, three of them were put outside the UCSB Student Health Center, if you want to see those. I kind of do. Closer to home, on the northwestern side of the City National Plaza on the lower level are two of the like huge bronze elevator doors that they saved from the demolition site, and those are really nice. Yeah. LA used to be a big oil town, and the Richfield Tower made that clear to the world, and even though I can't say I wish the oil companies had more sway in Los Angeles, <laughs> it would have been nice to have that building on the yeah. skyline still, especially paired with the Eastern Building. Like That would have looked oh, really yeah, nice. No, that's a good backdrop for Raymond Chandler to yeah. do his thing. Modern Raymond Chandler. Uh, <laughs> Bosch. Or yeah. The loss of this building and the fact that there was no organized group fighting to protect it led to groups like the LA Conservancy being formed so that there could be a focused fight and something like this wouldn't happen again, even yeah. though it always does. On the positive side, it seems that ARCO opened the first AMPM somewhere in Southern California, but I couldn't find where. And yeah. uh, those are our lost buildings. That was a lot. Yeah, we went through a lot, man. Yeah, yeah. We're those guys that we just rattle off information and everyone learns something and then we forget it immediately. We try to. That's why we take these pills afterwards. (laughs) It's weird. This is the first episode where it feels like everything's getting tangled up so... A lot of stuff that we mentioned, it's like all connecting in ways that I'm waiting for. I almost feel like the purpose of this podcast is becoming like a full picture image of the history in Los Angeles and this one filled in like a bunch of gaps that we were missing. Yeah, exactly. Like we're doing a puzzle and this was like that one piece surrounded by all color of blue that looks the same as that but we now we finally got it in yeah if there was one of these things you wish could still be here what would it be dead man's island (laughs) honestly i want to see the coconut grove that would be pretty cool but it would probably be gross at this point yeah and i don't know what the party scene in hollywood's like you know clifton's is not gross though that's true we had to lose everything outside of clifton yeah we had to lose it for it to come back yeah a richfield building i think richfield i would pick i would like the courthouse though yeah of course is dracula needs to live somewhere (laughs) judge dracula needs (laughs) somewhere to live yeah the city uh city never sleeps the city she loves me yeah it just keeps growing and some things just can't stay yeah and it's it's a real Again, like I said about the arcade depot, like style over function means that it's going to become a parking lot. Because yeah. no matter how beautiful it is, there's just yeah. not enough space to just con- like, oh, we but we like the style. So who we cares? Like, we like Zeppelin docking stations yeah. and big towers. Yeah, we, we, who cares? Like we need like yeah. more. Uh, we need a uh, giant uh, cylinder. Exactly. Yeah, we need an elevator shaft that actually has an elevator in it, and just some big hole. <laughs> Can you dig it? <laughs> that being said, about style over function, like it's so good to have the conservancy working on preserving stuff. Yeah, like it, Bob's it just House. It, it took so many defeats someone stick their foot out and trip time up (laughs) that's what they are los angeles is foot yeah that's how i see the conservancy because it's changed their name la's foot (laughs) 
I like it. We're the feet people. There's no, almost no point in having a history podcast if we're continually, like, if there's nothing here to talk yeah. about. Like, we can talk about hot dog on a stick, and the original one's still there. Can like, we? it means something. Yeah. Yeah. And I, mean, I know that's a stupid example, but it's also, like, the first one, and it's there still. Talking about all the stuff that's gone, it's important, but also you can't. It's almost like talking about a ghost. Like, yeah. yeah. We're unseasonal haunted episode. <laughs> it, it is, yeah, to think about, like, across the street from City Hall, there was one of the biggest buildings, in, and it's just not there. Like, there's no trace of this stuff yeah it's, it, it's really weird even going through that big coffee table book about los angeles you'll just see like oh yeah this now it's the beverly center but before there was this little thing and who cares that it was a little thing like a park for kids or whatever <laughs> it's gone down in off-leash uh, kids park <laughs> this is a space where we don't beat you <laughs> don't let your friends beat you to itunes how do you do this how do you do this it's a gift <laughs> i'm a natural born Barnum. I'm a barker. So yeah, bark bark your way up the iTunes tree. Did it again. And, okay. uh, <laughs> oops. oops. Leave us a review on iTunes. Yes, please. Uh, it's easy to do. If you have an iPhone, just open your podcast app. It's all logged in. Look for us. Leave a review or just a star rating if you want. It makes it easier for people to find us. It makes us able to keep this going and yes. it helps us our ego. E- e- it helps our ego. <laughs> Email us any questions or field trip suggestions or episode suggestions at la.meekly at gmail.com. To clarify what the field trip's are if you work at a historic place or are affiliated with something not necessarily historic but meaningful to this city or if you think it's meaningful to the city we'll be the judge of that email us <laughs> no. and we'll come down and inter- yeah. <laughs> we'll come down and interview you yeah we are on twitter at ally meekly we're on facebook search ally meekly we're on tumblr that's our homepage for everything it has a podcast archive of all the episodes allymeekly.tumblr.com or instagram ally underscore meekly daniel posts every day beautiful 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 the collections of videos and and if you want to see off-season videos <laughs> of the Rose Parade. If you want to see the doodle parades, 16-second videos over the next nine months. People want it. <laughs> well, maybe stop liking it, and I'll stop doing it. Don't give them the suggestion. <laughs> I'll see you in May. April, May. Yeah, May. May 1st. I'll see you May 1st. May the 1st. Uh, listen. May you be the first. Listen. There's going to be a different co-host in May. No, may that not be true. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good April. Hope to hear from you. Come on, be nice. Have a nice 420. <laughs> uh, Hitler's birthday. Um, <laughs> Thanks for being there for us. Thanks for being a friend. Thank you for being a friend. Thanks for coming to where everybody knows your name. Thanks for throwing tossed salad and scrambled eggs all over us. <laughs> uh, these happy days are yours and mine. Uh, welcome back, Cotter. I think we've said enough. They've stopped listening. No, they're still there. They want to hear the catchphrase. And what they, is it? They want to hear the catchphrase? <laughs> we'll give them the catchphrase phrase oh no i dropped <laughs> that has been yet another episode of la meekly ding ding diddly doing it since 2013 and and finn <laughs>